0: This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 29, recorded on July 20th, 2020. you are listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abby Abdallah. I'm here with Dr. Fauner and Dr. Keller. A lot of 20s in today's date.
1: There, 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 there are quite a few. Really important date coming up in two days, I hear. So that's good. Oh, yeah. Uh, What's coming up in two days? Someone is turning 21. According to my physical, biological age. Here. Father, you're going to be 21? I'm going to be 21. Now I need to go back for a gym reassessment, a physical reassessment. But last Didn't they time assess was... you
2: at 21? Is that That's
0: what we talked hear? Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> but given I... that the gym has been closed and you haven't
0: been to your regular gym oh, in... Regimen...
1: I'm at 47 years old now, I bet. Probably. Probably.
0: My actual uh, body age was higher than my actual age. I bet you now it's much, much higher.
2: So we could have actually recorded in two days and done... Fawner's birthday, birthday for
0: the birthday of the scientist. Yep. Maybe well, I'll tell you year. what we'll Still do. We got Gerd. We'll do a shout out. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do a little I'll, shout I'll out. I like that. We'll do it. That's yeah. good. So let's start with that. So Doctor uh, Christopher Fawner, middle name Wesley, I think.
1: Wow, I really thought you would have forgotten that. That's it is shame. Wesley.
0: Chris- he doesn't seem to forget it anything. It is Chris- Wesley. I do not forget anything. Christopher Wesley Fawner, born on July twenty second. 1987,
1: I eighty-seven. going to say 7, 1987. Wow. He's a, a youngest. I know. really. I'm good. not that I much I already older graduated me, from either. college at that point. <laughs> Apparently, my bodily tissues are only 21, so let's not
0: forget that. So, Dr. Foner was born south of Pittsburgh, PA, uh, grew up in that environs. And he did his
1: uh Washington County.
0: Yeah. He did his undergraduate work at Gannon University in Erie, PA. Good, and then he uh went and did his PhD at Duquesne University mm-hmm. under the it's good schools auspices of the Dr. Sarah
1: Woodley. Shout out, very good. Yes, he
0: uh did his PhD work on salamanders and stress, stress, stress responses. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, mm-hmm. he's an amphibian. Uh, uh, would you call yourself an ecologist, physiologist, an
1: amphibian physiologist? Technically, it was a neuroendocrinology lab, so a neuroendocrinologist. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Dr. Fauner then went on to uh, uh, be an assistant professor at Teal College in Greenville, Pennsylvania.
1: Four quick, wonderful years,
0: yes. Four quick, wonderful years, of uh, two of which he was the chair of the department. Let's not forget that. uh, That is not an easy feat. That might be his biggest
2: contribution to science right there.
0: At that age and at that early stage career, uh, being chair of a department is impressive. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Fawner in his uh, free time, enjoys running. Because someone has to. Someone has to.
1: <laughs> I run for all of the BioBusters. <laughs> That's right. That's, that is absolutely That's probably correct. true. There's yeah. two miles for Chris, there's two miles for Dober, and two for me.
0: <laughs> and uh, I'm sure on. Dr. Farner is married to the wonderful Kayla Thornburg, mm-hmm. and uh, married by me, by the way. I was the officiant at that wedding. Let's
1: not forget that. Let's not forget Let's that. Let's not be too self My greatest gonna... accomplishment. <laughs> uh, enough on that scientist anything else you would like to add and now i've been what a year in both myself and dr a or one year in like a weekend to yeah. our new even more wonderful careers absolutely at lecon at yep excited to be here all right let's do today's scientist very good Gerd binning good so, so Gerd was born on july 20th 1947 he is the German physicist who co-invented the scanning tunneling microscope with Heinrich Rohr. They both then shared the Nobel Prize for physics in 1986 with Ernst Ruska for this discovery. And Ruska had earlier designed the first electron microscope. And um, Gerd, I'm going to keep calling him Gerd just because I like that name. Instead of Binnig. There you go. Gerd Binnig was born in Germany in Frankfurt, where he studied physics at J.W. Goethe University. He received both his bachelor's degree and a Ph.D. from that university. And he developed the scanning tunneling microscope with Heinrich Roer at IBM's Zurich Research Group. All right. So uh, the scanning... Sc- oh, uh, Uh, What's a scanning tunneling microscope? How is that different than your regular light microscope? So it doesn't act or function like a traditional microscope because this microscope will be able to image surfaces very precisely at the atomic level, right? You're getting a more in-depth or deeper view of what you're looking at. Um, This scanning tunneling microscope gives you an idea of what the surface of an object looks like on the atomic level. And in order to do that function, a conducting tip is placed very near the surface of the object that you're investigating. And essentially there will be a voltage difference that's going to be applied between the two, between the conducting tip and between the surface of an object. Um, This allows electrons to essentially tunnel through the vacuum space between those two surfaces. And this tunneling current is acquired by a computer and usually displays a specific image. And the current, this tunneling current, is a function of the tip's position, the applied voltage from the machine, and the local surface density of whatever sample you're looking at.
0: So you're pretty much getting a 3D-ish view of the surface of an object at the atomic level. Yep. And you would say to yourself, well, what the hell use is that for, right? But you can study uh, friction of a surface, roughness, uh, defects, and whether you can actually perform certain reactions on uh, on the surfaces of things. So think of uh, people using this for sort of uh, semiconductors and microelectronics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found a neat study out of uh, Cornell University, researchers there have demonstrated you can use uh, uh, this uh, STM, scanning tunneling microscope, to rotate individual molecules in a sample. Isn't that cool?
2: So
1: that's
0: why you put it in here, Cornel. Cornell, ah. or because it's cool to rotate individual cool. individual
1: molecules cool. in a sample. I'm getting a type of nepotism <laughs> type of feeling. Yeah, well, it
0: is every episode. <laughs> nepotism, yeah, like 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 I own that place. <laughs> well, no, it's, you remind
1: me of the guy from The Office who was at Ed Helms, who everything went back Andy? to Cornell. Andy, yeah, Andy, yeah. Andy Hello. Bernard. Um,
0: alrighty. So, uh, in addition to the Nobel Prize, he has won other physics prizes, and he is still alive, I discovered. Married to a psychologist. Maybe somebody two needs, kids. To, somebody
1: needs to send him One born in,
0: in Europe, one born in California. Hmm? <laughs> you know too much about this guy. <laughs> All right. Any clarifications? Uh, none that I was made aware of, no?
2: Nope. Nothing for me.
0: All right. So, where are we with coronavirus numbers? Well this is not a coronavirus episode by the way for those of you no, out there will be done in wondering moment. yeah are we talking about coronavirus well a little bit well, and then we're going to move on We, no, we an think, yeah we think We've it's important that to subject
2: update you know if there's something major we'll bring it about but as of right now I just want I I do want to say wear the damn mask I I I mean you have to at this point. I mean point. look, I I do before we begin it's just it's getting crazy. I'm all for your personal rights and all. Right. But right. for the love of God, just wear the mask. It's not hard and it 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 makes sense if something spread through air droplets and it's hitting your mask, it's not getting in your mouth. Yep. So right. we know that it reduces transmission like crazily good.
1: And nobody wants to be doing this. It's not like anybody looks yeah. forward to putting the mask on. Those who are fighting for mask rights well, or it mean, was Hannibal Lecter. Well, okay, Hannibal mm-hmm. Lecter maybe, right? But those Close. who are those who are <laughs> proponents for a mask mandate are not doing it because they love wearing masks. We're doing this because yeah. we need to curtail and, you know, mitigate this thing. I mean,
2: in all seriousness, if we've been wearing masks forever, there wouldn't be flu epidemics like there oh, are. Of course, yeah, sure, yeah, you know, yeah, of course. I, I mean, it's it might be the the current new reality it'll probably go away but we'd have so many less I- I respiratory infections Let's just wear
1: the mask please i'm honestly shocked we're at this point near the end of july and people are still fighting over whether or not to wear the mask i thought we'd be past this but I'm I, I,
0: I think it just got politicized so quickly it, yeah. it became an issue of like uh what party do you support or yeah Uh, Not to get into any politics, right? We don't want to do that. You say that a lot, or or whether, (laughs) oh, you're trampling on my rights with a mask. I mean, if you're really concerned about your rights, folks, there are a lot of violations of your rights going on in this country. Go pay attention to those. You know, the mask is the least of your concern. And you're look, the mask is saving other people, so do it for somebody else. Exactly, and possibly saving your own life. Right? Yes, yes. you may feel invincible. I do.
1: You may feel 21, but you're actually 47.
0: That's right. Where are we with coronavirus? So total worldwide confirmed cases, 14,600,000 or so. Worldwide death, 600,000. U.S. is uh, closing in on 4 million cases. We are at about 3.9 or so million cases with uh, U.S. death being around 140,000. That puts us at a case fatality rate of 3.675. I don't know if you guys remember when we first uh, started with coronavirus way back in February March our case fatality rate was closer to 5%. Mhm. And there were I believe there were estimates that it was going to get upwards of 10 to even 20% at
2: yeah. one point.
0: Uh well because in Europe the numbers were close they were, to 10 they, 15%. were yeah, yeah, they were yeah, much yeah.
2: higher at the time.
0: So a lot of people say okay well we're doing so terribly and you know sometimes they'll compare us to which, I mean, we are doing terribly. The numbers are I mean, going not up. But I mean, not really
1: considered but it's, a good job. Yeah,
0: exactly. But, uh, but, but my pet peeve with this, sometimes they'll, on the news, they'll put, like, the U.S. and then they'll put, like, Germany next to it. And Germany is, like, no bigger than some of our states, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think that's not a good comparison. So, what I actually did today uh, is took all the European continents and added up their numbers. And what would you get? So, the total European continent is at 2.7 million cases. So we are slightly bigger, but mm-hmm. uh, but not not by much. However, uh, European deaths are at
1: about two hundred thousand, which U.S. deaths at this point one hundred are lower, 000, even with more cases versus two hundred thousand in Europe. So their case fatality rate was is at seven
2: point four two percent. Wow! You know what I'd like to know mm. too. Besides this, which is that's great.
0: That's that's good. We're doing good. Um, wow. Well, I mean, neither are, are we or the Europeans are doing great. We have well, a pandemic. Right? Yeah. What, what, what are you to yeah, stop exactly, a freight train? Exactly, you know,
2: it's coming. Yeah.
1: yeah,
2: right. Hopefully, you can just slow it down a little bit. But yeah. I'd like to know uh, what, what's the uh, test positivity rate. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So currently in the U.S., I think we're averaging uh, ten to fifteen percent in those hot zones.
2: And those are people, again, that we think we're exposed. We're not
0: not just testing Joe Schmo
1: for Not everybody,
0: Or people that feel ill and they go get tested and it's not COVID. Right, right. Right. Could be something else, right? Well,
2: well, that's the way it should be. If if you think you have it, go get a test. But we're not testing people that don't think they have it. So Mm -hmm. I guess my point is that's pretty low.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In terms of how – so these were total numbers, right? In terms of how have we been doing the last couple weeks – I think the Europeans are ahead of us by about a month or so in ha- having it under control, right? Okay. Uh, so the last 14 days, the U.S. had 884,000 cases total. Europe had 200,000. 90,000 of that 200,000 came from Russia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, how many people did we test
2: and how many people did they test in Europe?
0: Yeah, in terms of testing per million, uh, we're testing a little bit more than most European countries. Right. For sure.
1: That's a tiny sliver of good news, I suppose. Yeah.
0: So now they're saying, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, they're saying that there's a shift in who is positive in the United States. And they're seeing uh, that the majority of of cases are coming from
1: people under 50. Yeah, Uh, Majority of cases are coming from people in the 30s. And is that a situation where because we opened back up, at least on a national level, um, what, a few weeks, a few months ago, and because it's summer and you're younger, you're in your, whatever, 18 to 49 demographic, are those 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds going Going out, out. enjoying the summer, getting all together in Florida where we're seeing tons of cases coming through and I guess it can be state by state as well, right? Like more lax restrictions, no masks, lack of enforcement of social distancing. It could be all of these factors combined, right? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's definitely multifactorial. Mm-hmm.
2: But keep in mind, too, that initially we were only testing people with severe uh, disease. That's it yeah. right there, yeah. And so so if you're only testing people that are likely to be ventilated, mm-hmm. uh-huh. well, you're, you're not going to
1: test those 30-year-olds that have absolutely. a cold or you know, just – even just cough. have milder symptoms or asymptomatic completely. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Definitely multifactorial. So, multi-factor here, so but... I
2: I mean, there's there's many facets there. I agree with you, Chris. Yeah. You know? I mean, people yeah. going outside and not practicing social distancing or, you know, they're increasing the spread of, of this uh-huh.
0: virus. And due to limited tests at the beginning, uh, we were only uh, also testing those that ended up in the hospital. There were yeah. no pop-up testing sites, right. this, this and that, right? Yeah. So a lot of infections, my guess, went undetected. Which is so, a
1: dangerous situation, especially for those asymptomatic carriers that could be transmitting that's how it. That's, like how spread, uh, yep. uh, that's how it's spread. That's how this whole thing started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yep.
0: So where, uh, Keller, where do you think our total numbers are? Our total numbers? Yeah, we have confirmed cases of about 4 million, 3.89 million. Do, do we think we're, oh, oh, we're, we're at 10 times that?
2: Oh, oh, whoa, oh, oh. whoa. Um, I don't know that, well they're saying, you know, one in one in ten patients now are have or one in ten infected or having symptoms. So it could be upwards that I wouldn't say over ten times that. Yeah,
0: yeah. But
2: wouldn't it be nice if actually there were forty million people that, that more, would have it? Yeah.
0: More. If that if means it was more that, that'd be that great. means
2: we add them to the pool of people that have recovered and should yeah. have yeah. have protective
0: antibodies at least for a while. So uh, you know, a lot of people talk about herd immunity, but well, Every that's... time I hear that in the news, as an immunologist, I cringe a bit. Because to really achieve herd immunity, you're looking 70%, 80%, 90% infected.
2: Well, so, well, it depends on the R-naught. Right. It really does. I mean, with something like measles... You need to have in the 90s right. because they're just so infectious. This one is an are not two something mm-hmm. still. So yeah, I, I haven't seen it, yeah. yeah, I haven't
0: seen recently anything. It'd that, be nice to
2: see that. Too, yeah, right? yeah. But, see if it's changed. But I can't yeah. imagine it's changed much around two. No, yeah. So it's like the flu. I mean, look, if we're around probably 80%, we should be covered. I mean, that's a guesstimate. Yeah. But,
1: yeah. but when no you're right, you're right. And,
2: and we're not near that. And herd immunity is really. You know, not just used in the really in the context of an outbreak, but more for vaccination. Absolutely. I was going to say
1: it has many functions, and part of that herd immunity to get there is going to be the development and administration of a vaccine. Correct. Yeah, and we're not even we're no, not we're even close, we're close to the number of cases. And I yeah. think that's what kind of irritates me is you see a lot of people you know, Google MDs and Google PhDs who will just bandy about and that Google word. And Google
0: dios let's not leave those out. Oh,
1: sorry, Google <laughs> Dios. I forgot where I was working. Um, <laughs> we don't have those. You see a lot of people bandying <laughs> that term about, yeah. oh, herd immunity, we just need to establish herd immunity. Well, I don't think they truly understand no. what no. herd no. immunity Well, involves. But it's true.
0: <laughs> I mean, right. we, we do. we but do, but that's no. not... That's but, but not
1: through infection. But you it, is not not feasible. It. Yeah. it is not feasible at this moment. You can't no. just no. infect I mean, you think about
2: the black plague, Half the city would die. Yep. And half the city recovered. recover. And then for a while, you had her immunity.
0: (laughs) That's not what we're looking for. Yeah, you don't want herd immunity through infection, people. But, okay. So, uh, one more little thing on coronavirus before we switch gears to our main topic today. Uh, There's a lot of treatment modalities out there. And um, what have been the most used treatment modalities?
2: Well, the, the most used more supportive care.
0: Right. Okay.
2: Not. I, I mean, we still don't have any prescribed drug of choice for this infection. But, you know, we want to make sure our patients live through it. So, you know, you got to keep those airways open. That's number one. And so for the, the first thing was the ventilator. And, you know, we were concerned with not having enough ventilators. And clearly we we have enough ventilators now. Uh, but even something as simple as just making sure the, the patient is sitting up so that it's easier to breathe. Yeah. Um, you know, with with a disease like this, you, you want to try to maintain those airways. If they're lying flat on their back, you know, there's going to be an accumulation of fluid. It's yes. harder to get air into the air sacs. So putting patients, you know,
0: in a prone position. So why does that open up a uh, patient's lung, putting them in a the prone you should position?
1: I a physiologist. I mean, just being in that position, you have to figure if I'm not a, I'm not. Completely well trained in respiratory physi. I mean, I know respiratory physiology. Of oh, course, just give that, us an answer already. I mean, <laughs> being in the prone position, uh, I mean, air can just get down into your airways and through what larynx going down into your bronchioles. You might open up your bronchioles more. is uh, it an issue of, of, of gravity, is, like your lungs pull forward, like it could be a pressure gradient or back as muscle. Well. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Diaphragm. Does that work better in that position? I've Potentially, so the answer is anatomical,
1: anatomical
0: in nature. <laughs> yes. I, I just I, li- I like that. All right, so
1: drugs that have the most supporting data behind them are remdesivir and dexamethasone, which I believe we talked about yep. both yeah, we did in the past uh, few episodes. All right, but. Um, yeah, they reduce. Uh, they function to reduce hospitalization days. Um, remdesivir does by about 25 percent or so, and dexamethasone has been shown to reduce um, enhanced state of inflammation in the lungs with those COVID patients who are on ventilators, and it was shown to reduce deaths by about 33 percent.
0: And even though that was a lot of patients, a lot of data, I would caution everyone that this is still not peer-reviewed, did not get submitted <laughs> right. to publications. Still important. a case
1: report. Yeah. And is it um, because of, like, stock market laws, something like that? In is England? That, uh, in UK, not This was a, a UK study, dexamethasone. Okay. Yeah. So in the UK, they're required to, what, at least provide some of their data in order to support their claims? No. I thought it was a stock stock market regulation or something. Could be. I
0: don't
1: know. Could be. Okay. All
0: right. So uh, drugs where the jury is still out, we have a couple of those. Uh, Dr. Keller? You would choose me for this one, wouldn't you? Uh, I apologize if I butcher
2: this one. Favipiravir, maybe?
0: That's an anti-flu drug, right? It is yeah. an anti-flu drug, yeah. It was thought to reduce viral loads, but yeah, I don't, too, that not so much. It'd be,
2: it'd be interesting to see how that does. I like the recombinant ACE. So the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, I believe, is the receptor. Mm-hmm. And so giving a recombinant ACE as a decoy, hopefully that would uh, bind up any virus before it could actually bind to that enzyme on the cell surface Mm -hmm, and act as a decoy. I think that's, kind Of brilliant, but my guess is it's going to mess with your physiology it just could. a little bit. Yeah, just that dosing will,
1: would be important. Yeah, that ACE enzyme is very important. That dose has to be very specific. <laughs> yeah.
2: And of course, the antibodies uh, that's probably the best. I mean, right now, convalescent antibodies um, I know some people that have had um, recovered from COVID 19 have donated antibodies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we're manufacturing them in the lab because we, we know what the antibody isotypes look like.
0: And, I mean, they have shown some improvement for some people on that. Sure. yeah. yeah. But really, it's the supportive care is the most important thing. If your
2: patient right. can resolve
0: it,
1: let's just help them do that. And Absolutely. I think that's where we're at a very dangerous tipping point right now is hospitals are getting flooded again in some of these right. hot in spots. In the south, yeah. Especially yeah. with these ICU areas and ICU yeah. um Portions of the hospital that are at capacity already. It's it's getting scary in these different areas. Again. Well,
0: some of some of the issues have been uh, staffing too. I was listening to an interview with a uh, doctor in South Florida and Miami, and he said, uh, you know, he runs the hospital down there, and he said. His problem is not ICU beds. He has over 1,500 ICU beds in that one hospital. His problem is staffing. He can't find enough nurses and doctors to staff those ICUs. So having those beds isn't really that useful if you don't have the people for it. All right. Drugs in the category of not helpful have been shown to uh, be not effective. We have hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, originally touted as a treatment possibilities. Uh, Further studies showed it not to be effective. And Two other drugs, antivirals, anti-HIV, lopinavir and ritonavir, mm. uh, showed promise in vitro, but did not produce the same results in vivo. So keep in mind,
2: again, there's there's not been one drug that has been shown right to be effective against this virus. Our best bet is a vaccine. like you said, definitely point. yeah,
0: and palliative care and supportive care. Absolutely, that, that has been the best treatment modality so far. Yep. And in the category of absolute batshit crazy treatments, we have. Bleach Bleach and UV light. Helpful to kill
1: the virus ex vivo on a surface, not helpful to kill it in vivo. Yeah, and it might cause some damage to, you know, internal organs, tissues, and cells at the same time. And there were a
0: few cases of people trying it, uh, you know, because they saw it on the news or something. Not good for you. Not good for you. That's what they say. All right, switching gears. What are we talking about today? What's our main topic?
2: That was like half the podcast. I want you to know.
0: (laughs) What, what if you have an arbitrary one-hour limit? Oh, all right.
2: We're going to talk about blood Birds. groups and diseases today. Uh, I find this kind of intriguing, but there's not as much info out there as I thought there would be.
1: Yeah, there's there are a few helpful review articles, but sure. I really was. Um, i thought there would be many more substantial studies and, and different diseases uh-huh and it's more localized more specific to a group of different diseases and there's that. some information and as we're going to talk you guys, about are you guys telling me that there is a
0: niche an opportunity here to write a review i think that would actually perhaps be kind of cool. yeah we'll add it to our giant to-do list hey we i mean uh, how
2: hard is it to blood group some some People or find out their blood type and look at hospital records. There's yeah. an opportunity here to, to examine a bunch of different diseases with case control studies.
0: Any of you students out idea. there listening who are interested in running this study, we will happily uh, be your uh, mentors. How about that? I like no, this. Yeah, no, I like. I like it too. If, if, could if do this I'm easily. serious about this, I'm not joking. If there's a student listening. And you're interested in looking at a correlation or causation, I probably you won't find a causation, but a correlation between blood groups and certain diseases
1: in uh, Erie area hospitals, uh, we are all ears. I think that would be very cool, but now we actually have to do this and strike while the iron's hot because somebody else will pick up this idea because we're live. Or right. maybe they'll, they'll include <laughs> us. Or Yeah, sure.
0: Well, you heard it here first, folks. Yes, <laughs> we've pant- patented so. this idea. All right, so what
1: are blood groups?
2: So we have A, B, A, B, and O, as
1: most of us know. Mm -hmm. Uh There are actually many more blood groups out there. There are. Right, about 36 or so, maybe even a few more. But A, B, A, B, B, and O are the most medically important and most common that we deal with in humans.
2: In addition to those, there's also the RH or rhesus factor. This is where you get your, your... your positive Plus or, your or minus, right yeah, yeah. so
1: uh, first discovered in a rhesus macaque oh who would yes, have thought which is a monkey factor. if you don't know i always like that word saying yeah. it in a research papers and they rhesus also macaque. refer
2: it, they also refer to it as the d antigen just yep, in case the d antigen mm-hmm.
1: so this becomes especially important with um incompatible um, um rh factors with a mother correct. and a child right and and it
2: can be uh very severe. What's um, it? It causes hemo- hemolytic, hemolytic disease, disease of the newborn. So what you'll see there is when when mom has a, a is arch negative and dad is arch positive. If the first child is positive, mom can make antibodies, mm-hmm. and the first child is usually born healthy. But if a second child is, is conceived that's also positive, mom's antibodies can attack that yeah. baby.
1: But luckily, and. In case anybody starts getting worried, they now have treatments and drugs yeah, Rogan, Rogan. they Rogan. take. Mm-hmm. There you go.
2: Yeah. So these these antigens are found on the surface of of our red blood cells, and some of us have blood type A, so we have the A antigen. They're little they're little glycosyl groups on the on the surface of the red blood cell.
0: Mm-hmm. Some so of us, they're uh, sugar molecules.
2: Correct. Yeah, yeah. And some of us have B, so there's B on the surface. Some have A and B, and some have O, which means neither. Exactly. And that's it. So you have four uh, major types. And then, of course, the the D. It's either there or not. And that's the positive that's or the negative. Positive yep. negative. And,
1: and this is pretty important when it comes to blood transfusions, yes. right? Yeah. Because if a person with type um, A blood receives blood from type B, you can get antibody-mediated reactions occurring, causing clumping of red blood cells, hemagglutination. And then you get an exaggerated immune response in that individual who received the incompatible blood, possible clotting, shock, kidney failure, death, I like basically that. something you don't want to do. Exaggerated immune response. I like that. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, there's a lot of human diseases out there, though. Yeah.
0: Autoimmune diseases. Uh, I just tend to think of all immune responses as exaggerated.
1: If they happen, they're exaggerated. I mean, they really oh, are. Okay. Well, I'm glad I'm getting schooled right now on the air by an immunologist. But <laughs> an exa- next time I'll an exa- just Exaggerated say immune response.
2: So. <laughs> So what I found interesting, to, to flip ahead a little bit, is that um, I didn't know this. I learned something today, that uh, the ABO agents are also highly expressed mm-hmm. on other types of cells. I knew I knew epithelial cells, but sensory neurons, platelets... And Vascular, vascular endothelial, endothelial lining. Yeah. So you know, it, it, not Epithelial to get ahead, a little ahead of ourselves, we were just talking about something called autoantibodies. These are antibodies that are involved in typically autoimmune diseases. Think of lupus or or rheumatoid arthritis diseases where our immune response is exaggerated <laughs> <laughs> and attacks ourselves. So it's it's um it's a, a, a antibody response typically. Um, against ourselves and in this case at least with hemolytic anemias that's what they are. Mm-hmm. And so if, if the antibodies are made against the in fact what's interesting in people that are say type A okay we'll go with B I'm type B. So mm-hmm. if I'm B positive whatever antigen type I don't have I have that antibody. I have A antibodies. Yes. Yeah. If you're type A you have B antibodies. If you're type mm-hmm. O you have both which is why you can't get a or B blood, like we were talking about just but a moment But O is ago. a
1: universal donor. Because course. it doesn't
2: have any yep. antigens. So it doesn't matter if no you have reaction. antibodies. No reaction, yeah. But if if we're making antibodies to those, mm-hmm. and those antigens can be expressed on these other cells like neurons and the epithelia, mm-hmm. what's to say they're not involved potentially exactly. in some sort of autoimmune disease that's that's yet to be characterized? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... I th- I mean, if you have the gene to have it expressed on the blood cell, then you'll have that same gene to have it expressed on other cells, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think different cells express different genes,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 you're right. Yeah. One of the common kind of things that we saw during our research for this episode was that this ABO gene is usually implicated in a lot of these predispositions to some of these disorders, right? So this ABO gene is going to code for a glycosyl transferase enzyme. And this enzyme functions to transfer group A or group B carbohydrates to the ends of these like glycans that are located on glycoproteins. Basically, this enzyme is there to help form the antigens, um, group A or group B antigens that are on red blood cells. And also those ABO antigens are expressed in those areas that Dr. Keller just described. And it's usually the ABO gene that's going to predispose to Um, You know, different cancers, different hemolytic diseases, as we're going to talk about. Yeah. So what are some other uh, blood groups for?
0: So what are some blood groups that are not ABO that some people might hear about?
2: So there are 28 blood group systems that are identified by the International Society for Blood Transfusion.
0: Which I I didn't know one existed. I (laughs) didn't (laughs)
2: either. In addition to the ABO and the RH. Uh, so uh, in addition to these, many other antigens are expressed, as, as Dr. Farner said, on red blood cell surface membranes. Uh, for example, uh, you could be B positive like me and, and RH positive. But also there's the MNS system. So you can be M and N positive. There's the Kell system. Shout out, Dr. Kell. Uh, I don't think she discovered it. I doubtful. I, uh, doubtful. K, uh, you can be K-positives. There's the Lewis system, so you could be uh, Lewis A or B. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a plethora of these, uh, but who would want to know their blood type that that's, that wouldn't fit on a
0: card? Yeah. Here's yeah, my donor card. Room here's, my, pretty, here's my donor parchment. You know, yeah, it's not going to be very paper. efficient. So one, one, of, one of the things that I thought about uh, while looking at this is during blood transfusions, why do we only then concern ourselves with the ABO system and not any of these other blood groups?
2: Well, they must be minor. I mean, yeah. look, let's let's take function then and, and, and outcomes. I mean, if we're not concerned with the Lewis or the Kell system... Then they must be minor players at the most.
1: Very rare because I think, it, I think it's very rare when these um, antigens are expressed yeah. in human beings. So, so right? either it's, it's a limited. You can have res- a rare blood type. Right, right. Yeah.
2: So, so either they're a limited response or maybe rare. Mm-hmm. But here's the out. Why are you giving somebody a transfusion in the first place? So I I guess my my point is if they're rare and they could still cause a hemolytic anemia, I mean, the outcome is probably death to begin with. Yeah. right. Or else you wouldn't be receiving that transplant. You are correct. You are correct.
0: Uh, And, you know, like you said, they're probably minor. Uh, Same way we don't necessarily match uh, during transplantations anything other than MHC class 1 and 2. There's MHC class 3, and that's minor. And blood group. Yeah, and blood group. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to maybe a little bit later is, well, what's the evolutionary advantage of having blood groups? We'll, we'll,
1: I don't know. We'll, was, we'll come back to that.
0: We were discussing that earlier. We'll I, come
2: back to that. Did you find something? You got an idea? Foner may have an answer for us.
0: Oh,
1: I
2: great. do.
0: So our interest in this uh, blood group business started originally uh, a couple weeks ago when there were a few media reports about uh, certain blood groups being more susceptible to coronavirus infections and it turns out eh, no strong link that has sort of been debunked two major studies uh, showed this one was done at the massachusetts general hospital and one was done at columbia presbyterian in new york And uh, both did not find that type A increases the odds of people getting infected with COVID, which was sort of the original uh, uh, idea. Uh, The new report also do find evidence, however, that... Type O blood may be slightly less likely to be infected, but that the effect is so small that people should not count on it.
1: Too bad. I thought I'd be immune. Yeah,
0: and yeah. It turns out blood type did not affect whether you ended up on a ventilator or uh, whether your uh, odds uh, of dying uh, changed based on blood
1: group. So, so no, no really functional outcome. Yeah. Blood so don't cheat in coronavirus. Yes. Don't cheat, Fawner. I won't. Don't okay.
2: Worry. Good. I mean, you got two days of your birthday. Don't be going crazy. Yeah, that's right.
1: No, no. I think I'm going to stay
0: inside. Uh, Which got us uh, digging into this, right? So, what
1: did we find? Uh, Blood types and risk of heart attack and cardiovascular disease. So, individuals with the ABO gene and those individuals that have type A, type B, or type AB blood. So, anybody but O. mm -hmm. Anybody but O. And especially if these individuals are living in areas with high pollution it's been found that these individuals have possibly an increased risk for sustaining a heart attack in their future. And the ABO gene has also been implicated for increased risks for coronary artery disease, which can then possibly lead to heart attack via obstruction of the coronary arteries. And what is it that group A is at the highest risk Mm -hmm. out of those three blood types, right? And... I mean, just because this is a link, if you have type A, type B, or type AB, that does not mean you will for sure, you know, sustain a heart, attack, a heart attack or yeah, die of a yeah. heart attack or coronary artery disease. But these are just the statistics and the data that show right. that there is a risk.
0: Right. How, how do you reduce your risk of heart disease? I mean...
1: This is pretty standard, basic. right? Pretty basic. Sorry. Nothing, I'm nothing, lobbing nothing, you an easy one. I'm, I'm too innovative I'm here. I'm reading this going. Isn't that what we tell everybody? <laughs> yeah, everything. Well, if you uh,
2: have blood type A, you So should. basically,
1: all of the fun stuff that you like to do, don't do it. Um, don't, That's right. Uh, don't eat don't bad foods. Don't eat junk food. You have to eat healthy. Um, don't smoke. So luckily, I'm clear there. And um, exercise regularly will help you to avoid this risk. Which you do all the cardio for all of us. So oh, hey, that means <laughs> but he's also a group O,
2: so he was safe to begin yeah. with. <laughs> I right. see. I, I like it. I'm compounding my interest
1: so that I live longer. But I'll hey, don't
0: don't 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 sleep too easy there, because uh, blood group type O has an association with peptic ulcers. There we mm-hmm. go. Yep. so uh causative agent for peptic ulcers and uh, peptic cancers is uh, h pylori mm-hmm. and uh, incidence of peptic ulcers was 20 percent higher for gro- group o than group, uh, ulcer, uh, than group a duodenal ulcer incidence was 35 percent higher in group a o than a b or a b And it turns out that H. pylori can bind to blood group O structures on the gastric epithelium, making them stick longer in the gastric mucosa. because antigens
1: are functioning as cell surface receptors receptors for these pathogens. Yeah, keep in mind
2: that that's that's very important in the stomach because if it's floating around out... In the uh, the lumen, which is just out in the middle of the stomach, mm-hmm. it's going to be killed by stomach right. acid. Each pylori yep. Helicobacter has to survive right there at the uh, the cell lining. It has to yep. actually grab a hold of those cells in, the in order to lining. St- mm-hmm, yep. in order to start the whole infection. Yep. And, I mean, think about trying to live in uh, you know a pool of lava. That's kind of what's
0: going on here yep.
2: with this acid. So it has to neutralize it. But if it's floating around, it can't neutralize all that acid.
0: That's right. And it's so probably it will probably end up getting washed. away Anyway. Yep. Interesting.
2: What about... Yeah, uh, cool, also, stuff, eh?
1: cool stuff, Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, this is stuff that I never really knew. I had no idea about H. pylori being able to do that with the group O structures and antigens. Oh. So what other risks are there with blood types and other things that are found in the blood in vasculature? Uh, clotting risk. Oh. So uh, non, go ahead.
2: Yeah, so non-O individuals are at higher risk. So we're talking A a b and b Mm -hmm. uh, are at higher risk for arterial and and venous thromboembolism uh and uh, those blood groups again can have higher levels of von willebrand factor and and factor eight and increased amounts of these can lead to greater chances of clot formation inside the blood um and if those clots break free they become and uh they can can become emboli and and lodge in different areas Mm -hmm. um maybe I think most people are familiar with uh, stroke. Yeah. Yeah. Stroke and, um, oh, as was thinking DVT and airplanes, like when you're sitting too long. And oh, you, yeah. Yeah. You deep know, you can. Vein you can get deep vein thrombosis. Deep vein thrombosis. Those PAE, can lodge.
1: right? Pulmonary. Pulmonary, artery. Yeah, yeah. So
2: they can lodge in the lungs. So, um, wow. That's
0: that's crazy. A lot of stuff there. Yeah. A lot of stuff there. And you also, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, and are you still on clotting? I think we're done with clotting. Or what were you just going to say?
1: I was going to say blood types and brain function as well. Let's not forget the brain tissue. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Speaking of uh, uh, having a stroke, so it turns out there's uh, also some risk associated there with uh, not necessarily stroke in the brain in this case, but brain function and memory. So think of cognitive issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, It turns out... uh, This
1: statistic shocked me.
0: Right? A... B and AB individuals are 82% more likely to have cognitive and memory issues possibly resulting in dementia. Which wow. group
1: is at the highest risk out of those A, B. three? A, AB. AB. A, B. B, B.
0: Again, these are uh, associations, right? Yes,
1: eighty-two percent. That's
0: a lot. Yeah, that's, that's a right.
2: lot. <laughs> a lot. I, I, I'm, I'm, I didn't the, read this particular. Study. You'll, you'll like
0: find to, you'll find references to all of these uh, sure. uh, uh, studies in our reference list. Yeah, we in always the show notes. reference
2: everything. Yeah, we yeah, included a lot. Yeah, yeah. except for uh, Doctor A's opinions.
0: Uh, those no, have no no reference, that. No reference
1: for those. <laughs> those are not recommended. <laughs> not
0: recommended. Yet. Not FDA approved. Oh boy. Right. Okay, where are we at? So, uh, yeah. So uh, that that is interesting. Extremely yeah. interesting.
2: I, so then I looked up a little bit more about cancer and blood types because mm-hmm. it was kind of vague. Oh yeah. And I found a review. Um, you know, so so yes, it type A has been uh, associated with different. Actually, they all have if you yeah. look at it. But at some point, yeah, at some point. But I found one specifically that gave um, relative uh, risk ratios. Mm-hmm. Um, with it, it's interesting years. It, it's been known for forty years that the ABO blood groups associate with pancreatic cancer development. Mm-hmm. And um, at first, they thought it was O, but they found uh, it. More recent studies. There's a whole bunch. So I just pulled one uh, for a cohort study in the states that found that. Um, People with A, the non-O group, again, are at higher risk. Mm-hmm. So it was the opposite of what they found a long time ago. Foner's um,
1: still doing great there. With that yeah, O-line. I know, right? <laughs> hey, so, what uh, was it? I'll just get the odd peptic ulcer every now and then. Are you positive or negative? Oh, that's true. You're going to get peptic ulcers. I think O negative. I'm pretty mm. sure. Yeah. yeah,
2: I didn't find much on RH. Did you guys see anything no. when you were looking? Not much, at the, much? not much yeah. on RH yeah. either. Anyway, so for the non O blood group, uh, the risk, the hazard ratio for pancreatic cancer is 1.44, and that was uh, that was statistically significant.
0: So. Can you give us a brief uh, definition of what an odds ratio is, an odds or, what, ratio or what it means? To well, this was enough. a
2: relative risk because they did a cohort study, but um, they they are actually two different measurements that that are the same thing. So, whenever we're doing epidemiological studies, uh, we're really looking to mitigate risk factors, whether it's whether it's in the uh, uh, workplace environment, whether it's uh, you know environmental, whether it's you know here in in medicine. We always try to mitigate risk. Yep. Um, and so we identify hazards. In this case, the hazard would be cancer and the bad outcome would be getting the cancer. Mm-hmm. So the, we want to know what the risk is. And so we'll take, in this case, we do a cohort study. In a cohort study, you're going to take people that, that are pretty much healthy and follow them over time to see if they develop the cancer. And so they enrolled people in different blood groups right, and follow them over time. So you get a true incidence and so you know how many new cases of cancer, but we want to know relative. So you're you're going to take what they did was they took people in the different blood groups and looked at their risk relative to the people in the O group. Okay. And so you get a relative risk. Mm -hmm. An odds ratio is similar, but you do it with case control studies where you're looking at the odds of having. Uh, so you enroll people with cancer or with not, and you you look in the past at their blood groups, which mm-hmm. I guess would also be current. But yeah. In that case, you, you would know what the odds of having that blood group is in people that had cancer. So they're very okay. similar.
0: So if the odds ratio equals to one, what does that mean?
2: That means there's no association between your
0: risk factor and your um, disease. Okay. So less than one meaning you are less likely, right? Less risk. Correct. And more than one means you are more likely. So in this case they were more likely at one point
2: four four. That's not very high. Yeah. Keep in mind that's that's not even a twofold. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So that's that's not even it's not really that high, but it was significant. So that's right. okay. exactly. very interesting.
0: Okay. Fantastic.
1: So, what are some other things that are associated with blood groups? Uh, risks for different infectious diseases, right? Well, that I, I mean, that's we... that's the one that got me going uh, last time, right? Yeah, right. and I think we talked, we mentioned previously a few minutes ago that these blood groups and the antigens on the surface of the red blood cells can function as receptors for pathogens, toxins, parasites, bacteria, etc. And might actually facilitate the colonization and invasion of pathogens, depending on the particular antigen. Correct.
0: Mm. So some of these, uh, in in a lot of cases, may not necessarily be a sort of a receptor ligand or ligand interaction, right? Sometimes uh, these. Huh? A, ligand. a ligand. A ligand. What would you guys say,
1: ligand or ligand? I, do. I say ligand. 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 Interesting. Yeah. And Dr. I learned ligand. says ligand. 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 It's like uh, medulla or medulla. It's medulla, obviously. It's medulla.
0: <laughs> is it medulla or medulla, Dr. of
2: All I can think of is the movie Waterboy. Right I now, know. So. The medulla. <laughs> Something wrong with his medulla oblongata. How,
0: how, how about
1: the plural? I say medulla.
0: Medulla, yeah. yeah, I do,
1: yeah. 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 I say medulla. If TJ Fisher's still listening out medulla. there, then he's probably uh, rolling medulla. his eyes right about now.
0: How about the plural of uh, focus? Foci. Foci. Okay, some people say foci, which yeah, delights me. Uh, yeah, yeah, I which is the that. sort of like being true to the original Latin. Yeah, that's wrong. That, yeah, exactly. It There's is also fungi <laughs> versus
1: fungi, right? Some. Yeah, I'll go, say both just yeah. to throw people off. Fungi. I've, <laughs> I've noticed. Okay, now that's just weird. I think I've. No, people... I don't say it. I'm
0: just. I'm just. I'm just thinking of things. Okay, right. so uh, uh, back to the. Idea that they, they're not necessarily sort of receptor ligand interactions, right? They could be uh, 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 making these cells or cell surface receptors just a little bit more sticky. Some sugar molecules are sticky in nature. Yeah.
2: Y- exa- oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it might not be a lock and key effect. That's exactly. kind of what we're that's, talking that's about. That's what I'm about. A receptor and a ligand, they're they're the lock and the key. Yeah. And, and they're very specific. Just having sugars, a lot of bacteria use sugars just to initially to stick to. In order to start replicating. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, some quick summary there. Type O blood group is associated with an increased incidence. So, foner and not so lucky after all with the infectious disease department. Oh, God. Plague, yeah. cholera, mumps, and tuberculosis.
1: That sucks.
0: Type wow. A blood group is associated with an increased incidence of smallpox and pseudomonas aeruginosa infection. Type B is associated with an increased incidence of gonorrhea, tuberculosis, streptococcus, pneumoniae, E. coli, and salmonella. Type AB blood group is associated with an increased incidence of smallpox, E. coli, and salmonella infections.
1: But blood type O, I will not have any increased risk of dying of severe malaria, correct?
0: Yeah, you had, found, uh, you had found a study looking at uh, falciparum, right? Yeah. Plasmo- um, the- and, oh, that's another one with parasitologists. Plasmodium falciparum or plasmodium falciparum?
1: I say falciparum.
2: Any right-minded person would say falciparum. <laughs> falciparum,
1: right. So plasmodium falciparum is the causative parasite for malaria. And the mechanism of why blood type O individuals might have increased protection from um, dying of severe malaria... Um, Plasmodium falciparum secretes, what do you say, the rifin protein or I R-I-F-I-N protein? I would. And this protein acts kind of like glue, as Dr. Keller just mentioned about one or two minutes ago. This protein secreted by this parasite will act like glue and strongly bind to surfaces of type A red blood cells, but doesn't seem to bind very strongly to type O red blood cells. So it looks like I avoid malaria. Ha ha. Well, well, you don't avoid it. Well, you avoid right. less, less like malaria. It. severe. I'll still maybe get it, but I'll I'll brush it off. It's and,
0: still, you'll get coma. totally. not And for <laughs> for those of us listening, uh, uh, thinking of like, oh, well, what do what does the parasite for malaria have anything to do with red blood cells? As we know, the uh, parasite actually needs to infect a red blood cell to divide and multiply. It's not capable of doing that outside of red blood. That's part of its life life cycle. cycle.
2: And and if you think about uh, malaria, one of the, the first genes that we know that was associated with an infectious disease was sickle cell
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and I, I'm not sure if we've talked about this before on uh, I can't remember uh, uh, yeah,
0: but that's a one ami- single amino acid change a single change, single single amino amino change. And, and,
2: and so the it, this is what really got me interested in, in microbiology I took mm-hmm. a cultural anthropology class at Bradford and I was like man
0: you know, that's, that sounds interesting.
2: It was it was, it was. it was about different types of environmental mm-hmm. effects on the human body and why people are the way they are, where they live. And the, the malaria thing, it really struck me because here you have a mutation that kills kids. I mean, historically, there was not. A, we, we have treatment now for sickle, at least supportive care for sickle disease. Mm-hmm. But kids that had the two genes for sickle would die. Right. Homos- and so why would it be in the population? You think it would, you know, eventually work its way out. Yeah. But the people that didn't have that, that just had the adult type were highly susceptible to malaria and would die. Mm-hmm. But kids that had one sickle gene would, so, would heterozygous. Survive. Yeah. Heterozygous kids would survive. Mm-hmm. And so here you have an infectious disease that puts so much pressure on survival of the population that it actually shaped the genetics.
1: And that's actually a working theory for why, you know, depending on the population, um, it's thought that these diseases are putting selective pressure on exactly. the development of different types of blood types.
2: Yeah, well, th- I mean, there's so many other thalassemias, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I, we, I remember somebody was looking at hemoglobin C for a while and, and mm-hmm. fetal hemoglobin and, you know, all these different genetic polymorphisms, yeah. uh, changes. That that
0: are associated with different levels and different degrees of severity. Yeah, so we go back to the idea here that uh, the disease is putting the selective pressure,
1: right, mm-hmm. to in pushing a group or a population to develop the majority of a certain blood type, right? Uh. Well, yeah. No, well, yeah. Yeah.
0: Develop. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. Well, select is 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 probably more scientifically accurate than mm. developed but but yeah i see what you mean now the that that goes back to the question and i'm glad you brought that up is what 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 is the point of having blood groups why do our red blood cells have different antigens on the surface and the answer may simply be uh, evolutionary pressures based on disease, based on ethnicity, based on when, where you grew up. You had different selection pressures based on your environment that ended up with your population having certain uh, blood groups or versus not, right? Yeah. And, you know, we, we frequently talk in evolutionary selection about oh, survival of the fittest. But it's not necessarily the fittest in the sense of, oh, I'm the strongest, right? It's the fittest in the sense of, I have the genes that allow me to survive my (laughs) environment.
2: My infection didn't kill me. Exactly.
0: And in this case, clearly, there is no benefit to having sickle cell other than surviving malaria. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right right so in that case that's not survival of the fittest from the fit sense of is is it better you're to sick, have sick actually exactly yeah you can but... have
2: a you could have a, a... A cycling crisis. Uh
1: huh. But you're not dying from malaria, which dead. is the evolutionary pressure there. Well, studies have also shown that your microbiome, your gut microbiome, can also have an effect on how your red blood cells are able to develop and mature inside the human body. I yeah. think they did this in both humans or have seen it in humans, but they've also um, compared germ-free mice to mice with certain types of intestinal tract bacteria colonized there. And they've shown that there are differences in, I believe, at least the time and the maturity rate of red blood cells. So I know we've talked a bit about, you know, red blood cells um, and predisposition to peptic ulcers, H. pylori, but bacterial like the healthy gut microbiota are also very important when it comes to the um, optimal maturity of red blood cells.
0: Well also the optimal maturity of an immune response in general mm-hmm. the the yep. immune response is really uh, trained in the gut
1: yeah uh, cool stuff, so depending on dietary differences and you know uh, differences in gut microbiota among different populations that might also have a role to play in different blood types being dominant or predominant in a population yeah so uh
0: then that got me looking into the prevalence of blood groups in different continents in different cultures in different countries and uh you know there are certain populations in south america that are entirely group o and i bet you yeah. that's a combination of uh founders effect mm. Effective degree. Yeah. Effectively disease, famine, etc. killed a lot of people, and then you only had a few individuals left over to effectively breed, and they were all group O, and then everybody every descendant is group yeah, well, O. If you don't have A or B in the right.
2: population, you're never gonna have mm-hmm. well. So a lot rare. of the
0: indigenous people, uh peoples of South America are actually group O. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Uh some to the rate of a hundred percent. There's an indigenous group in Brazil, all hundred percent O. Wow uh, Peruvian, uh, Incas, Mayans, uh, descendants, uh, group, O, and I, I, I think that's founder's effect personally.
2: That's interesting.
0: Yeah. I'd agree. Cool. All right. Any other examples, uh, of disease and, uh, blood groups that we found? Not
2: that I found. Are you talking
0: uh, about
2: cholera already?
0: Uh, briefly, we we do have the link in we do have the link in the in the show notes. But uh, Vibrio cholera 01 uh, causes you know cholera, mm-hmm. and uh, a study published in PLOS neglected tropical diseases showed a lower risk of colonization in uh, group O individuals. But wait for it. Yeah, that's the here best we, part. Here we go. This is for father however in those group o individuals that do have the disease their symptoms are more severe okay no. don't get
1: cholera <laughs> okay so i shouldn't get cocky either there don't get, are things don't get out cocky there that, can, that can get me okay you know i
2: wonder what the ends are on some of these studies you know and right and whatnot um i didn't delve into all of them so maybe that's something to look at
0: yeah yeah uh all right where are we at on time I don't know. It is three fifteen, so it's been what about an hour, ish, ish. Right, maybe that's uh, that? okay. Well, maybe we'll Time have to do another. Uh,
2: maybe we'll have to do weekly segments. I don't know. A weekly, weekly podcast at this point.
0: I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, that'll this make is, it harder this, is for the me. Fa- this is the my, this is the favorite. My favorite part of my job is sitting here talking
1: science with you guys. No, no, I like this. It gives you, me a break from just the rigors of work. I'm not, I, I Maybe don't a need little to kiss bit of your a ass, but
0: I don't need to kiss your ass or anything. <laughs> well,
2: I didn't know that. I just come here
1: for the free candy. That's right.
2: Well, he buys it. Well, it's not free. Well, I got to pay go.
1: for it. Man. Never mind. It's free it's for, it's free it's free for you. Water. I didn't know where it came from.
0: You think it magically appears in this jar? That's what I thought. All what? right. So, uh, guess the
2: microbe segment. Yeah, all right. Uh, so, uh, now for guess the microbe. Um, hopefully, you've listened to this far. uh, I'm going to ask that we have some more submissions from our listeners. Uh, We're trying not to make it too hard, but it lets us know uh, that you're listening to us out there. So, you know, each episode we do a new scientific or medical scenario. Uh, We just ask you to do a little bit of research and respond via email at thebiobusters at gmail.com. And, of course, we have prizes and uh, we just got a lot more prizes in,
0: so. Uh, and remember to collect that prize. You gotta yeah, email us. We have to. We don't email you and say, "Hey, you won." Tell yeah. us where you want your gift delivered. Uh, you won a prize. Gotta email us. Gotta mm-hmm. email us. Otherwise, we put it back into circulation. That's right. it <laughs> last longer. It's a short right. leash. <laughs> All right. So
2: let's, So those last episodes. Uh, guess that microbe. Uh, In the earlier parts of the 20th century, a young soldier fighting in World War I developed a stiff neck, a headache, and fever, which are the classical signs of meningitis. This was the first known human case of disease caused by a bacterium that was isolated several years earlier from the livers of infected rabbits. The bacteria was again isolated from humans during an outbreak of neonatal, or baby, meningitis in Germany in the mid-20th century. Today, this pathogen is a major reason for food recalls and severe disease in immunocompromised patients. The questions for the last episode are, what is the name of this bacteria? What is the history behind the name, i.e., who was it named for, and how is it acquired? And Dr. Rick Lorenzo has written in once again with the correct answer. So uh, you are our winner, Rick. Please keep writing because, uh, well, you're usually correct. And we like like your answers. uh, And we like your answers and we like the extra feedback. So we appreciate it, right? So remember, you got to contact Dr. A if you want this prize. And since you have a young one on the way, I think uh, you should probably pick it up and have a collection. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, here, here's a portion of Dr. Lorenzo's response. Uh, he says, well, I am going to say that my wife came up with the answer, which I'm sure she did.
0: So Is she also a uh, medical she's doctor? She's
2: a veterinarian.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. No, she definitely know about
2: this one. Oh, my gosh, yes. I'm, well... And he's Yeah, and, and sex, he says, she said the answer way before the clues were done, <laughs> so there's not a
0: surprise. Stiff neck, headache, and fever, right? Stop right. It, so she one. went with
2: Listeria. Listeria monocytogenes is the correct bacteria. It is uh, usually transmitted in food that is not pasteurized, like milk, soft cheeses, uh, unpasteurized cheese. Also, uh, I'll add in cold cuts. And, and
0: gas station sushi. And gas station sushi.
1: Hey, don't knock that. They Never eat sushi every now and then. <laughs> I am joking, of course.
2: You put that blood group O to the test, aren't that's you? Right. <laughs> I'm impervious. <laughs> so it does survive in the refrigerator, and that is what's really interesting. This bacteria grows in the fridge. So if you ever open up your lunch meat that's been sitting there for a while, folks, and it it smells funky, you know to throw it away. Don't try to fry that stuff. If it has a, 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 a like a slime, a slime or a sheen to it, that's like a metallogeeria, that's listeria. Throw it away. It can actually cause some very severe diseases. Um, it is also a concern to pregnant mothers uh, because it can be transmitted in utero. It can co- it can cross the placenta and cause stillbirth or even uh, granulomas. And it or can,
0: severe brain damage. Or I mean.
2: severe, yeah, mm-hmm. a, very, a lot of, of congenital symptoms. Right. It can also be transmitted around the time of birth and cause neonatal meningitis, which is one of the, the major reasons we tell pregnant women not to ingest unpasteurized cheese, dairy products, and, and cold cuts. Uh, I uh, He says, I did have to look up the name origin. I assume the last name is Lister and joseph lister is the pioneer of antiseptic surgery and that is correct so all three questions correctly answered
0: by you win our prize connie which is rick's
2: wife so yes which is a
0: stuffed listeria it's a it is it's It's a
2: stuffed listeria yeah
0: it's a listeria so
2: rick make sure you like tell us where to send it would you um, okay, so Rick, or, or rather Connie, that's absolutely correct. Listeria monocytogenes is a foodborne bacteria that typically causes gastrointestinal disease. A lot of us have probably come into contact with it, actually. Yeah. Um, so usually diarrhea. But in immunocompromised patients, specifically transplant and cancer patients and neonates, it can be very deadly. It can get in the blood and cause septicemia. It can cross the blood, uh, get into the uh, the CNS and cause uh, meningitis and it can be lethal. Uh, there have been many food recalls due to possible hysteric contamination. All you have to do is visit, visit the CDC website.
0: Oh, annually, yeah. That mm-hmm. is oh, yeah. Very common.
2: Yeah. In fact, uh, some outbreaks in this century have been associated with soft-serve ice cream. I think it was the Blue Bunny, hummus, and even here, some locally grown peaches uh, about about 10 years back. There's an outbreak. uh, Probably one of the biggest ones to hit the news in 2011. An outbreak was associated with contaminated cantaloupes that gained national attention. Uh, Supposedly, they knew about the contamination.
0: And it was in pre-cut cantaloupes, if I remember correctly. Correct.
2: They were storing them on the floor somewhere in, in water contaminated with known the,
0: yeah the machines as they were cutting through the canellum the, the as well, listeria yeah. was on the outside on the and, on on, yeah. the, on, the, on the rind of is would you call that a rind for i the would call it a rind i would
2: um Listeria. So then just so you know where it comes from, listeria is everywhere. found <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, it's in soil and water. So, you know, it's not that somebody's putting it there, but it can also be uh, in animals. So you, that's why you can get it from cold cuts. So uh, it can be in the GI tract of, of cows and pigs and sheep. And I found it interesting that rabbits and chinchillas are particularly <laughs> sensitive to listeria. And large outbreaks can occur in these animals. Because when do uh, you usually get to discuss chinchillas?
0: Or rabbits, for that matter. You can, only, you can get tularemia. Is, t- t- is it also in chinchillas? tularemia. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. Uh, anyway, the bacteria was named
2: for Joseph Lister, who was the first person to sterilize surgical equipment by using carbolic acid. Nice. Yeah.
0: I think Listerine is named in his honor. It is, but that's a company. That's right. This is a bug. Even All though. right. Well, good job, Rick. So great job, Rick. Yeah. So, uh, do you have a case for us for this week? I do. I do.
2: do I'm excited about this. Uh, Now for this week's guest, the microbe in the latter part of the 2000s in Oregon. Some previously healthy patients developed respiratory symptoms, including cough, shortness of breath, and chest pain, followed by fever, headache, and again, a painfully stiff neck. Most of the patients had spent time outside in the forest, including camping and hiking. Some of these previously healthy patients succumbed to meningitis caused by a rare fungal pathogen, which was originally thought to be a tropical fungus, but it is now endemic to the Pacific Northwest. Bless you. Including parts of Washington and Oregon, and there have been several cases reported in California and Idaho. So this week's questions are, what is this fungus, and how did it get to the Pacific Northwest?
0: maybe on the oregon trail good answer huh? you're see, just a see, silly guy see what i just did <laughs> uh. all right if you think you know the answer please email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com and uh keep sending us feedback we love hearing from you uh uh rick writes uh, glad to see you're back to podcasting once again my wife connie and i just listened to it yesterday I wanted to weigh in on some things mentioned during the podcast. You talked about people being afraid to take their children to the doctors and get vaccines uh, and uh, the rise in some diseases that we previously saw a decline in. I wanted to tell you that one of the committees that I'm involved in was actually repurposed to address the issue of ramping patient load back up in the outpatient setting and trying to get patients back in the office since there was a huge decline in patient load with COVID-19 we're also are uh, trying to utilize virtual visits as much as possible we are seeing a decline in well child visits so there uh, was some education about the importance of these visits uh, vaccines and assuring that all precautions were being taken to keep all patients safe all right
2: uh, and he goes on to say, uh, so there were concerns out there, and there, it seems like they're addressing them. Uh, he says, I'm also scared to hear about the mutation to polio, mm-hmm. as I think we all are. Uh, I am involved in Rotary locally, where I live, and that
0: is one of the global projects we are involved in. Perfect. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's- well, thanks for writing in, Rick. Thanks. And um, anybody else, if you have any suggestions on topics you'd like us to discuss, uh i think we're going to start shifting away from coronavirus we'll come back to it as the developments happen in vaccine research and things like that but uh i think in terms of the science of it we've exhausted that covered it. Pre- yeah, for we'll, yeah, yeah for now for we'll, now we'll talk about yeah. updates and numbers and things like that but I, I think we're moving away from that all right so that's our show for today you can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com uh, you can find us on itunes uh, just search for the BioBusters, and uh, I'm Delbert Abby Abdallah you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert and you can find Christopher Fawner at fawner 916 and Dr. Keller is too just, busy for social media well
2: I am quite busy but if you really need to get a hold of me just tweet Delbert oh,
0: that'll do yeah that'll do thank you all for listening and thanks to Ban Money for the music thank you thank you